Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumTheSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. You can listen to us 24-6 out there. And welcome to another edition of Political Talk. I know we have been off the air. We've been a little bit on vacation, kind of recharge the batteries, uh, July, August. Apologize for that if you haven't gotten your political fix. There's so many ways to do that, you know, just to confess everybody. I mean, there's just a lot out there. But uh, I know that you come here for perspective, a little bit of better understanding, some of the micro issues, some of the micro races that might not get covered in the political firmament. If you go to Politico, you're not necessarily going to hear the same issues, the same talk, the same races that you're going to hear on this program. And I appreciate everybody being out there and tuning in here on another Thursday evening on the Nachum Siegel Network. And first and foremost, we're sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And uh, as I mentioned, it's September already. We're post-Labor Day, and Labor Day is the traditional kickoff of the campaign season. And I don't know why, but I guess people come back and they start paying attention. But people say, okay, the uh, the campaign season starts on Labor Day. And in New York, at least, in New York State, the primary day is the second, the second Tuesday in September. So it is kind of immediately after Labor Day, very close to the general election. A lot of states have their primaries earlier, earlier, June, July, August. And really, I think that it would be a tremendous public service to consolidate in New York those primaries, that we have them all on a single day. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever that we should – some people should have to vote three, four, five, six, seven times per year. If you live in certain places, you have to go out and vote almost every month. And it's uh, it's a little bit nuts, if you will, costs us money. It's uh, time, and it's just an example of government uh, run amok, from my humble perspective. But we're going to get into some of the New York primary preview a little bit later in the show. We're going to have Jacob Kornblu joining us, uh, talk about Brooklyn and some other uh, items, as well as the expert political analysis from Ryan Carbon. Both frequent guests on the show, and it'd be good to have them back. First, however, I want to discuss the national scene, and we have a lot going on nationally, and particularly the control of the United States Senate. And there are right now, if you look at the Senate from most political analysts, you will have a 45 solid Democratic seats for the I'm talking about for the new Congress, not the current Congress, 47 solid Republican seats and eight competitive races. So it's the country, if you will, the entire country is kind of hinging on some of these eight races. And it was perceived a little while ago that there was going to be no question whatsoever that Republicans were going to capture the U.S. Senate, that that was going to flip just by virtue of the states that were up and where a tough, unpopular Democratic president, Barack Obama, for Democratic candidates to have to run with him uh, as given his unpopularity in a lot of these states and given also the makeup of, of red states, if you will, that were kind of looking to be turned from Democrat to Republican. And that has actually not happened. It was always it was a kind of a question as to not whether the Republicans were going to take the state Senate. I mean, the U.S. Senate, excuse me, but. But by how many seats or what type of majority were they going to have? Was it going to be a 55-seat majority? Was it going to be 57 seats? And now it's – I wouldn't say it's 50-50. It's probably likely that Republicans are going to win the U.S. Senate. But by no means are many of these races uh, a slam dunk at this point. And you know, just to start off, uh, you have races like Alaska where – Always been for years and years solidly Republican. Alaska has given us Sarah Palin, if you don't remember. And, uh, and now you have a incumbent, Mark Baggage, who is the former Anchorage, Alaska 
mayor. He is a first-term Republican, uh, Democrat. He won against Ted Stevens, who was a longtime uh, Alaska institution. Ted Stevens was indicted and put on trial and then convicted of corruption. But that was ultimately overturned by the uh, by the courts who found – they found that federal prosecutors had, uh, had acted inappropriately against Senator Stevens. But it had certainly cost him a seat. Hey, Begich comes into office. It's kind of perceived that he's a one-term guy. He's never going to go ahead and and be able to survive as a in red state Alaska, which typically sends Republicans to the U.S. Senate. But yet he's holding his own currently in in Alaska, partly because of a fractious uh, Republican primary. And now he has a Republican primary opponent, Tim Sullivan, uh, is the uh, and. The, and we will see, you know, what what exactly is going to happen there. Alaska being a big wild card, president obviously being very un, uh, obviously being unpopular there. But uh, it's kind of unclear as to how that might shake out. North Carolina, another one. Republicans were expected to kind of run away with it, and they were kind of go expected that this was going to be a slam dunk. North Carolina being a red state, although that's kind of trended purple uh, at over time. And however, Senator uh, Kay Hagan also expected who came in uh, in a good Democratic year was expected to really not survive. The Republicans running the Speaker of the House, Tom Tillis, against her. And what has happened there is Tom Tillis is the the North Carolina legislature might be one institution that's less popular than the United States Congress. And Tom Tillis has now suffered a little bit under the weight of that, still considered a prime Republican pickup uh, in North Carolina, but by no means a slam dunk at all. Uh, one, uh, you know, a couple states that are kind of looking like they're going to turn, which is Mark Pryor in uh, Arkansas, uh, which is certainly looking like it's going to be going to the Republican. Mark Pryor, the incumbent against uh, Congressman Tom Cotton. Most people think that that is going to be Republican. Georgia looking very strongly for Republican. Uh, David Perdue, uh, I believe of Purdue chicken fame, a re- relative, uh, running against Michelle Nunn, who was a very strongly recruited uh, Democratic candidate, the daughter of former Senator Sam Nunn. And Sam Nunn being an institution, longtime senator, uh, well-known, moderate Democrat. She had a good, uh, a good pedigree. To run on, but that seems to be something that's looking like more and more like a Republican. However, states that were expected, as I said, to net, to really be prime Republican pickups, uh, are not necessarily going to happen. Mary Landrieu, uh, it's kind of neck and neck. He's in Louisiana. Uh, uh, Bill Cassidy, congressman, running against her. And that was kind of said, okay, she's finished. Mary Landrieu is done. Uh, the Republicans, you know, it's kind of iffy right now. I would say a lot of people say that Louisiana is going to go ahead and become Republican, but it's hard. It's, it, it's no, it's by no means a slam dunk. And then you also have Mark Udall in Colorado running against Congressman Cory Gardner and Cory Gardner, uh, also a strong candidate. Some polls have Gardner up by five points. Some polls have Mark Udall up by five points. Uh, but this was expected that the president was really going to weigh them down and that there was going to be a Republican pickup. And so far, that is by no means where it, the issue is undecided here in September. So why does this matter? Why do we you know, look at these races and we look at the fact that you know, these little – minute details and races around the country because there is really so much at stake. When you think about it, we have had two years, the last two years of the second of the second term of Barack Obama. I would say personally, very little has happened. In fact, almost nothing has happened. And it's it's really it's a sad state of affairs in Washington that nothing can get done. They worked from crisis to crisis domestically. And right now we're kind of lurching from crisis to crisis internationally as well. We are the Middle East is absolutely aflame. It's not just Israel. It's absolutely, uh, I think, ISIS, as as Barack Obama called them a couple months ago, the JV team. Uh, now all of a sudden he's realizing, wow, that wasn't too smart. Uh, 
and he's kind of thinking, well, kind of underestimated these guys again, kind of how he underestimated Bashar Assad and underestimated Nuri al-Maliki and underestimated Hamid Karzai and Vladimir Putin. The man is a, a king of underestimation of foreign leaders. Um, I think that he probably didn't expect to have to spend so much time on foreign affairs. And I would say possibly the JV team is not ISIS. The JV team might be Barack Obama's foreign policy team. But I want to return – to the the national scene and that preview after we take a look at the some of the local items and we have uh, jacob cornblue holding on the line jacob from jewish insider great email tip sheet every single morning uh to get in your inbox not just covering the jewish issues not just covering israel issues but all kinds of issues of interest uh during the day and you should definitely take a look at it jacob welcome back to spin class Always a pleasure to be on the show, Michael. So, Jacob, uh, you, you know, I haven't had a show for a lot of the summer. You know, took took some time off, took some time away, but uh, the world doesn't stop, and the world of politics certainly doesn't stop just because I'm on a little bit of vac- vacation, does it? Never ever, Michael. Even though you rest, uh, the world never rests. So, yeah, a lot has been going on, even though it wasn't so intense like some would expect. Um, races are less competitive um, locally for the reason that these are primaries, not general elections. And usually the establishment is the one that um, has the upper hand in in, in, in these kinds of, of races. But, um, I mean, if you look at politics, uh, you can always find... You can always find the light at the end of the tunnel um, if you're a political junkie. And, of course, uh, a week before, even less than a week before primary day, uh, voters are um, making up their minds. And um, it will be interesting to see the outcome of next week's primary. So, Jacob, you, you're, you've covered Governor Cuomo now. You covered... Uh... Uh, Bill de Blasio, you covered a whole, you cover all the politicians here in New York. Let's talk about Governor Cuomo for a second and the campaign he's running, or as uh, Nachum told me this morning, the lack of campaign. Um, you know, I think, look, he's running a campaign. He's just running it as governor as opposed to candidate Cuomo. And from my perspective, uh, I think it's quite, uh, it's quite brilliant. Uh, but the question is, from reporters' perspective, uh, from your perspective, it's got to be god awful. The guy's not engaging at all. There's there's nothing there's nothing going to hang your hat on, and and you're left covering uh, Rob Astorino and Zephyr Teachout instead of covering the governor engaging in the race. Yeah, it's quite disappointing for for a reporter who you, you know who looks for you know for stories to cover and events to cover in such a tight schedule. Um, However, I think that um, the governor, by not engaging, is engaging much more in the campaign than he would have if he would have campaigned one event every day or recognized his opponent, because the more that he disses his opponent, and in this case it's F.T. Schaub, who I understand is outflanking him from the left, and it hurts after they had their primary on the Working Families Party, and it's frustrating that an unknown name is getting so much media coverage uh, and a possibility of um, his own running mate um, losing the race. So, from one hand, uh, you can understand that the governor is reluctant to engage, not to empower um, his opponent. However, by not engaging, he empowered his opponent by getting media coverage, by getting exclusive, by by getting endorsements of people who would like to sting the governor or, or send him a message. And in this case, it's New York City, uh, where the voters are more liberal versus upstate, where the voters are more moderate. But these voters are not going to come out on primary day. They would rather come out for Arbusterino in November. So the governor is in a tough but, uh, spot, uh, and um, would he have engaged? People would have seen it as a weakness. On the other hand, he would have had the upper hand with the money he has and with the position he is currently holding. 
So, Jacob, you were at the press conference yesterday where Bill de Blasio, I think for a lot of people scratching their heads, mayor of New York City, endorsed Kathy Hochul, the rather conservative lieutenant governor candidate uh, of Andrew Cuomo. Were you were you there at the press conference? Yes. Okay, And so I, I understand that a number of questions were asked both of Bill de Blasio and of Kathy Hochul. Bill de Blasio kind of being the the flag-waving standard-bearer for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and uh, kind of asked why he's endorsing the more conservative Kathy Hochul over the more liberal or the more progressive Tim Wu, who is a, uh, a professor of law at Columbia. And uh, how did Bill de Blasio react? Uh, my understanding is he decided not to answer. Well, it, it, it depends how you spin that endorsement. From Bill de Blasio's perspective, it is um, Tim Wu is unknown, and it's not a matter of policy. It's a matter of uh, who would get things done. And for de Blasio, as mayor of New York City, uh, a progressive uh, voice in this fight. Um, after he fought his own battles with the governor and um, pretty much won most of the challenges he put forward to the governor, for him to embarrass the governor would be a disservice for his uh, prolonged uh, relationship uh, with the progressive movement because he child is viewed as somebody that would not win. And uh, who is an unknown candidate, even though he holds these progressive values? On the other hand, for those progressives that um, adore Bill de Blasio, and uh, are looking to vote for Wu or for Teach Out in the primary, they say it's just politics. I mean, Bill de Blasio is just honoring a commitment that he gave to the governor during the Working Families Party convention that he's going to stand at his side, and now he's just paying it back. You, you know, uh, uh, you wouldn't want a politician so-called to break his uh, word uh, that he gave. So... I think it's, it's insignificant because those who, who were, um, those on the sidelines would, uh, would not decide, uh, based on Bill de Blasio's endorsement. However, de Blasio did smart by honoring a commitment and just telling his people or those who, who, who really, uh, um, are progressive and, and, and disappointed in the, in the governor's conduct over the last four years saying, really, you don't have an alternative, the governor's anyway going to win, just why anger him and why anger, why rile up the base when, um, on the other hand, you have a candidate that is really unknown to everyone. Well, it doesn't speak that well of true believers then, you know, the people who actually really believe in the ideology of uh, of uh, class inequality and some of these issues or the DREAM Act or some of these real policy issues that Kathy Hochul has taken opposite uh, uh, positions on. I mean, she's she's pro-gun. She had 100 percent rating from the NRA. I'm sure that doesn't sit well with a lot of Democratic voters out there. But yet we had for political expediency people rushing to her side uh, you know, obviously politics is politics. I, I totally understand that and I get that. Uh, but it's uh, surprising that somebody as ideologically driven as Mayor de Blasio would be uh, running to do that. And I understand that you got to be friendly with the governor in order to do that. So putting policy and pragmatism ahead of politics, I think it's good politics. I think it's good government. But I'm surprised to see it from Bill de Blasio, given his, uh, given his history. But another question, uh, that, you know, one of the interesting things that's kind of popped up, Jacob, over time is the intense concentration, not necessarily in the media, but the intense concentration, uh, of meetings that Kathy Hochul has done with the Orthodox community. She has been all over the place meeting with the Orthodox community, whether it's in Williamsburg, or in Far Rockaway, or in Long Island, or in Brooklyn. She has been uh, everywhere trying to go ahead and get the Orthodox community to vote for her in the primary. Talk to us uh, for a second about that. We have to understand that um, the governor, by by well, not engaging with the community over the four years, will be a little, a little uh, awkward that the week before the primary, he comes down 
meets the community. So that's why on Tuesday he organized a meeting with Jewish leaders that was um, so-called a briefing on a recent trip that he took to Israel that was two weeks ago, and he created this media buzz. There was a press briefing, and the entire delegation addressed the press. It, it, it was more than, 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 than just a briefing on Israel. They could have read the news, the articles. He could have sent them all the pictures and videos. Uh, there was no necessary uh, need to, to, to organize this meeting. But yes, Are you calling it a campaign the governor, event? The governor had to do it uh, in order to, to, to show that he's not uh, so desperate. But um, I think Katie Hochul's um, uh, uh, meetings with these people were basically, I am the right hand of the governor, and even though the governor uh, would love meeting you, he's busy governing, and I'm his running mate. And the idea that they're reaching out to the Jewish vote is understandable because for, for the Jewish vote, there's really no real competitive race in this primary. I mean, in Borough Park, there's no primary. In Winnersburg, there's no primary. Crown Heights, they have a primary for a Senate race. I mean, it's competitive, but it's not something that it's in the news all day, and so on. So there's really no reason. You, you forgot the, about the Ben Axelrod race. What? You forgot about the Ben Axelrod race and Steve Simberwitz. Yes. Okay. What, what I'm saying is that the, there's really not much going on on primary day that should really drive out the Jewish vote. And the only uh, way how uh, Governor Cuomo can bank on the Orthodox Jewish vote is by sending down his candidate versus the unknown teach out uh, um ticket that is really unknown to the Jewish community. I think teach out hasn't expressed any stance on any issue as it pertains to the Jewish community. And of course, when it comes to Israel, she refused to take a stand. The other day, she finally um, recognized Israel because she found out that Israel was founded at the UN, and the UN is in New York, so New York has a special relationship with Israel. But otherwise, there's no reason for an Orthodox Jewish voter or, or a Jewish voter that is not so into these progressive values to go out to vote for Tzatzamu, and that's what the governor is taking advantage of, understanding there's a black vote, and if he mobilizes these people, for instance, the Sotman community, you know, it's an unprecedented move. They usually don't unite on issues. They usually take opposite sides, and now they came out in a ringing endorsement of the governor and his running mate, Hoku, and they bank on this black vote to at least give them the advantage if the race turns out to be competitive. Very interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit about the primary, alluded to it earlier, um, about the about the primary in South Brooklyn, uh, a rematch, Steve Simberwitz against Ben Axelrod. I think it's a more of... Uh, um, of mobilizing your base. Uh, Steve Simberwitz uh, is a strong assemblyman. He has his ties with the community, although uh, when it comes to issues, he's largely unknown to the district. He has his own vulnerabilities. And on the other hand, you have Ben Axelrod, an Orthodox Jew uh, uh, from Russian descent. So you have two strong constituents that could be uh, uh, helpful on primary day uh, uh, since you know, the, the base is going to be the ones driving the vote on election day, and um, that's what Ben Axelrod is banking on. The message, of course, is that he shares the values of the Orthodox Jewish community. I'm one of your own, and uh, he wants to just give voice to those in government um, who, who, who want to see one of their own. And uh, it hasn't been so... You know, uh, it, it wasn't reported in the news, and they had one debate, I think, in the Manhattan, um, the Manhattan uh, 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 um, uh, civil uh, organization, and um, it, it wasn't even widely reported. So 
So, so, so it's not getting a lot of coverage this week. The rematch of um, their own forces, um, Steve Simwitz banking on being an incumbent, and uh, Ben Etchler banking on his base, which could bring him victory on uh, primary day. Uh, it's yet to be seen if, if he'll be successful. Interesting. And just uh, with regard to the, I guess, the Jewish community right now, uh, one thing that I that that has kind of come up out there is the casino issue and particularly the uh, KJ, Curious Joel, uh, up in Orange County has uh, voted or their the village has announced their opposition to a casino that would be sited right near Woodbury Commons, about two miles from the village, as well as the intention to to sue or or to use legal action to go ahead and block any casino that might be happening uh, up there. <clears throat> Excuse me. So then, but uh, the interesting thing is, many in the Orthodox community they may not have voted for it, but at least many, there were there was a vocal support at the time for the casino referendum, particularly among the Aroni faction of the. Uh, of the Satmar community, and now they seem to be saying, well, you know, we're okay with the voting for the casino. Maybe there was a political deal going on there, but we don't want it get, want it to be right here. Tell us a, bit, a little bit about that dynamic there. Uh, well, here you go back. Uh, it's all politics, and um, these uh, these commitments to to accept it or to refuse it is also based on on politics. And of course, we understand that there was some agreement that they supported it at the time, and now that they see that support for the casinos has dropped, I mean, they haven't had so much success in the Catskills for, for, for several reasons, and uh, by, by more people uh, um, taking sides on the casino saying, yes, we don't want it in the Catskills, well, um, how about uh, closer to the city? That shouldn't be a problem. KJ is now in a problem because it's close to them. They were the ones that uh, supported the idea of casinos when it came to a vote uh, um, during the election season. So, you know, uh, uh, you can't take both sides of the aisle uh, uh, <laughs> depending on when it's uh, comfortable for you and when it's uncomfortable. So I think I think the the notion that the casinos uh, uh, ought to be uh, brought to New York uh, uh, is 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 a uh, is a foregone conclusion. The um, as the days pass, it looks like they won't be uh, uh, in the Catskills and Sullivan County. They would rather be more closer to the city. The question is how successful. Of um, the terrestrial residents in pushing this away uh, uh, for some other idea that is, as of now, unknown. Okay, Jacob Kornbluh from Jewish Insider, as well as JP Updates. Uh, Jacob, how does one subscribe to your newsletter? Uh, you just go on to the website, uh, jewishinsider.com, or you want to follow my daily activities. Uh, all day long. That's on jpupdates.com. And um, if you're on Twitter, it's at Jacob Kornbluh. Fantastic. Jacob Kornbluh, thanks for joining us here once again on Spin Class. We'll have you again as we uh, get through the political season. Always a pleasure, Michael. Fantastic. This is Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman, beckermanpr.com. And we have joining us a uh, great political commentator here in, in New York, former Assemblyman Ryan Carvin. Ryan, thanks for joining us here. How's your summer been? Summer, summer, summer is great, Michael, and I'm among those who insist that summer does not end until uh, the equinox. So the summer is still going on, and it's still wonderful. Exactly, as I, as I know, and in the bucolic setting of Rockland County, uh, I'm sure that it extends even longer. So uh, let's just jump right into it. <laughs> September 9th, primary day coming up. It's Tuesday. I know people. Don't they wake up? You know, Labor Day happens, and then all of a sudden, oh wow, maybe I got to vote, and that's probably why uh, turnout is so low. Uh, there's a there seems to be a lot at stake in a sense because although you know, there's not this sense that 
things are all that competitive. And what I refer to is the, the statewide races. Uh, there's only a primary on the Democratic side as, uh, for the statewide races, and that's only for governor and lieutenant governor. And, uh, I know we keep talking about lieutenant governor, which is essentially a powerless office here in New York State. And it kind of only matters because of some, uh, arcane political minutiae of running as can I, a ticket. Can I disagree? Can I disagree with you, Michael? Absolutely. Please do. Because it, 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 it all matters. And while the outcome is not at stake in this election, the conversation about politics in this state is. And what the New York Democratic Party is going to look like going forward is at stake. If you look at the, you know, progressive leader Bill de Blasio or, um, you know, I think, still think he's pretty progressive, you know, Governor Cuomo, whatever it is. But even de Blasio, who's kind of perceived as this rebel, bottom-up, park-slope, lefty fire-breather, comes out of a total career of establishment politics within the system, within the party. These folks, Chichel, Wu, who were um, getting so much traction from the progressive elements of the party, um, the Democratic base, that's very, very powerful. That's going to shape who is going to be the next generation of elected officials, what the conversation is going to be in Albany going forward. Um, I think that if Teachout doesn't crack 30%, you know, forget about it. This whole thing was just a, you know, a, a media working families party thing that got a little bit out of control. But if, if she gets higher than 30%, I think there's some message there. Wu should do a little bit better. But the lieutenant governor has a voice. These folks have a platform. This very debate itself is showing these, these fault lines. And if you can come, and from outside the party, outside the establishment, and become a viable statewide candidate with very, very little money, that has lots of implications going forward. All of our statewide elected officials right now, Democrats, are very, very seasoned political veterans. Gillibrand, Schumer, um, Schneiderman, uh, Denapoli, all these folks came up through the ranks. I think that this primary may shift that, shift where New York Democrats look for their candidates, and shift the discussion within the party um, about how you connect with a base in which there are obviously some people that are restive, but obviously some people that are very, very satisfied. New York Democrats are not uniformly liberal. There are lots of registered Democrats that are going to vote in this primary um, who wouldn't call themselves progressive. So generally, generally those that vote in the primary out. are liberal, are more progressive. The ones that the primary voters, the prime Democratic voters, are the ones that are the most on the left. Your primary electorate is more liberal than your general election electorate, and I think that you look at past statewide primaries. Uh, and, uh, Karen Burstein uh, beat Oliver Coppell, the incumbent male, very liberal Democratic attorney general in 1994. Knocked him off in a primary, and she was a liberal former family court judge, um, active in LGBT politics from, from Brooklyn. Uh, but that was a multi-candidate race. In a, in a one-on-one, I don't think that it is going to be uh, easy to get to 51% um, just by appealing fundamentally to to white uh, progressives. The African-American community that votes in the Democratic primary um, tends not uh, to be as liberal. Um, your outer borough whites, um, your uh, non-secular Jews. So there are definitely parts of the Democratic primary electorate that are more moderate and conservative. And I think you're going to see a huge effort by the Cuomo campaign in the next few days to try to uh, pump up that turnout. I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing a lot of this focus on uh, Jews and Israel and uh, everything else, to try to stimulate some interest and turnout from your less liberal Democratic primary voters. Yeah, our previous guest, Jacob Kornblu, was at the Cuomo post-Israel trip press conference earlier this week and basically said that it was hardly a governmental, more like a campaign event. In fact, he kind of termed it one of the first uh campaign events that Cuomo has done or the first meetings that Cuomo has done with the Jewish community in quite some time. Yeah, and what's interesting about the way that, that, that the governor is uh, dealing with the Jewish community is he's avoiding the de Blasio um, pitfalls. Um, if you look at that event he had, he had the full breadth of New York Jewish leadership there. Um, this is not just an orthodox play. It is, it is broader than that. But, you know, de Blasio kind of got sucked into the debate on Israel. You have Jews on this side, Jews on that side. Cuomo has been trying to paint with a very broad brush, keep Jews 
uniformly behind him. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of lefty Jews, too. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that plays out as well. But clearly the Cuomo campaign is making a very, very concerted effort to get Jews behind them. Um, in a Democratic primary, in any primary, um, ethnicity is the strongest predictor of voter behavior. Um, neither Peachout nor Cuomo uh, is a member of the tribe, as they say. Um, so this is a constituency which would be a little bit more up for grabs. It has a long relationship with the Cuomo family. And I think it's very, very smart politics for Governor Cuomo to try to drive up his numbers among Jewish voters. But Cuomo does have a Jewish brother-in-law, if you uh, just keep that in mind. So, you know, there who, is who a doesn't? connection there. But you anticipated the question I actually wanted to ask about the pitfalls. How did Cuomo, with this Israel trip, which I think was a stroke of political genius, and I think it was a, you know, excellent, and I think it was positive and valuable for Israel and for, for the Jewish community. Uh, so uh, hats off to him for that and making it bipartisan and bringing the legislative leadership there, all fantastic good things. How does, well how does he planned, avoid the, the APAC speech trap that, it, that trapped Bill de Blasio from the more liberal wing saying, you know, the, the, the free Gaza people for Jewish voices for peace and the like from criticizing him for going to Israel? Remember, though, this is the same New York. Okay, so it seems like we lost uh, Ryan for a second, but uh, I, I think my what I was thinking for a second is that, it, you know, the, the politics of Israel uh, seems that Cuomo seems to have threaded that needle so beautifully uh, to really just he was invited, if you recall, to the uh, to the Palestinian areas as well. He declined that invitation um, and that was but he didn't get any flack for that. And it's uh, quite impressive just to go back for a second as far as why the lieutenant governor race in New York actually matters. So what is it about it? So New York has this strange thing called fusion voting, meaning that a candidate can run on multiple parties on multiple lines, and those vote totals are all added together. So for a for a total vote. So you can run on the Republican, conservative, independents, or the Democratic working families, uh, other ballot lines as, as you go along. However, you have to run as a ticket. And if you don't run as a ticket, meaning that if your lieutenant governor or candidate is defeated and you run with somebody else, meaning that it becomes Cuomo and Tim Wu, who is the other Democratic candidate, you lose that fusion voting. So therefore, the vote totals that might come on those minor party lines are no longer going to be counted in the total. And Andrew Cuomo is not just looking for a victory here. He is looking to propel himself into the top tier of non-Hillary Clinton Democratic candidates for the presidency, whether it's in 2016 or in 2020. He wants to prove that he can win by a huge margin. And I think that that is the big issue for him, why so much energy needs to go into this minutia of going ahead and getting his lieutenant governor candidate elected. He also tried quite valiantly but unsuccessfully to get his opponents thrown off the ballot in true New York fashion, or I should say New York-Chicago fashion, where that seems to be in vogue. And it seems that we have Ryan Carbon back. Ryan, welcome back. Thank you. I was listening to what you're saying about what Cuomo's political needs are here. This is going to define the second term of his governorship and whether he really does need to shift strategies. If Democratic primary voters um, back the governor, I'd say two to one. Um, that's, a, that's a very, very convincing landslide. You know, you have Gadfly candidates who ran against Hillary Clinton, Mario Cuomo, to show up and get 20, 25% of the vote in the statewide Democratic primary. That's no big deal. 25% of the people are cranky and will vote against anybody all the time. So I don't think that's really a big deal. Um, I think the threshold is higher than that. But if Cuomo gets that kind of mandate, his entire strategy is validated. Move to the left on social issues, lead the fight for marriage equality, lead the fight on choice, um, put more money into uh, into schools, um, and at the same time work hand-in-glove with the business community to improve the state's uh, business climate, even if it means saying no to some of his more liberal friends on taxes. So that has been the Cuomo strategy. It's now being put to the test. But if he can stare down a rebellion in his own party, um, 
you know, this could be the greatest gift that progressives, uh, angry progressives ever gave to Andrew Cuomo because he's giving, they're giving him the opportunity to win. They're giving him the opportunity to declare his dominion over the Democratic Party's agenda in this state. So if there's a strong win for the governor, all these threats and all this stuff from the, the, from the leftier groups, the governor will pay that no heed, and the legislature will be empowered not to pay it much heed uh, in the coming legislative session. If you have a situation where TCAP gets 40% of the vote, um, then you are looking at a very different political map in the state, uh, very, very different alliances. So let's talk for a second. You mentioned Oliver Capel, right? Uh, a longtime Politico assemblyman, city councilman, former attorney general who. And one of the most obnoxious people in New York state politics. Yes, exactly. And he is running. At one time, there was this uh, fracture between the what's known as the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference. We've talked about them in the past and the mainstream Democratic Party. But now the IDC has pledged to go ahead and drop their support of Republicans, of coalition government and to rejoin the Democratic fold. And that was supposed to negate these primaries that were happening uh, both in, around the state to IDC state senators. Yet, uh, Capel is still challenging Senator Jeff Klein, uh, uh, John Liu, former city controller, former mayoral candidate, uh, is challenging Tony Avella. And what happened to that deal that was supposed to have happened? Well, John, John Liu is a different case. You know, he, he had a profile before all this IDC stuff. He wants to be back in public life. He's been a very, very uh, hardworking and effective public servant, um, and I'm not surprised that he's looking for an opportunity to get back in the game. Uh, but Oliver Capel has come after Jeff Klein for um, making uh, deals with the Senate Republicans. I mean, that is just the kind of rank hypocrisy that turns people off. Oliver Capel was the chief city council cheerleader for Bloomberg's third term. Regardless of what you think of Bloomberg, that was not a progressive, pro-democracy, lefty position. It was self-serving opportunism by Capel. So I, I think that uh, even some of his old diehards in Riverdale are just tired of hearing the same old song. You know, his, I think that Capel has confused his personal ambition with some kind of progressive imperative, and I think Klein is going to bury him. Okay, that was pretty emphatic right there. Uh, uh, it, 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 was, it was pretty emphatic because of, of, all, there's, of all these critiques um, that have been offered, um, I, I think his is the least legitimate. If you're going to be a handmaiden to overturning term limits in New York City, then it takes a hell of a lot of chutzpah to go come and criticize uh, uh, Jeff Klein uh, when it's because of his role there in the Senate you've been able to get things like uh, marriage equality. And, and, and he's put these things to the test. Um, the pro-choice bill failed on the floor of the Senate. Why isn't Oliver Capel running against you know uh, uh, Ruben Diaz, uh, who's a... Who's a um, you know, conservative on these social issues if he's so concerned about the purity of the Democratic Party. So people can disagree with uh, some of the things that, that Klein um, has done, um, but I think Oliver Capel is very, very poorly equipped to make that case, and I am mystified that the New York Times would endorse him so unreservedly um, when he has uh, a record of making deals that serve himself. So I, I find his whole critique to just be fallacious. And there's probably a very little-known primary going on, but one that's probably of interest to Jews in your neck of the woods, uh, particularly Aaron Weeder, the the uh, majority leader of the Rockland County Legislature, is running in a primary for a uh, open assembly seat. And uh, it would be interesting that you have a, a Hasidic – uh, potentially a Hasidic legislator, currently county legislator, looking to make the jump to state assembly. Uh, can you handicap that race for us? Um, no one's really interested in it other than the candidates themselves. Um, <laughs> and it's been a relatively quiet – I guess that's true of a lot of races. But it's particularly true of, of this, given what it would signify. If uh, Aaron Weider wins, he's the uh, first uh, Hasidic uh, representative elected to the New York State um, legislature. This is a district that was carved by uh, uh, Shelley Silver and uh, Assemblywoman Ellen Jaffe to dilute the voting strength of the Hasidic community, which did not like Assemblywoman Jaffe. So she got her colleagues in the Assembly to split the Hasidic community, which, is, which had always been in one Assembly district, which I used to represent, and that was divided down the middle. And half of it uh, stuck with uh, stuck with Jaffe, but has no ability to influence the outcome of an election because it's such a small group. 
and the rest of it was moved into this new district, which is a barbell district, which connects the Hasidic enclaves of Rockland, runs through some parts of Orange County, and ends up there in Curious Draw, the Hasidic enclaves there. Ultimately, this district will elect a Hasidic assembly member. Whether that happens this year um, remains to be seen, um, and the candidates are going to have to hustle out their vote. Um, you don't have a unifying theme that connects that district, so it's going to be a question of which candidate mobilizes uh, mobilizes their base. When Weider ran this race before, um, most of the Hasidic leadership was against him. Uh, you haven't heard that kind of rhetoric directed against him now. It's going to be interesting to see whether the Hasidic community will assert itself politically and send one of its own to Albany at a time when issues like the debate in over the new uh, um, proposals in Bloomingburg, the expansion of Curious Joel, the East Round Post School, lots of concerns of the Hasidic community are very, very much on the table uh, this year. And it will be interesting to see whether the community leaders choose to confront those issues and have an affirmative agenda for what the Hasidic community um, needs to serve its constituents, or whether we'll pursue an accommodationist approach, just continuing to work with those in power. I think that some of the tension you're seeing a little bit on the margins in this primary, there is a little bit of a vocal anti-Cuomo group in the Orthodox community who feel that the um, governor is being supported merely because he's going to win and just because of uh, longevity, um, despite what they feel are issues where he has not been in sync with the, with the Orthodox world. So I think that as the Hasidic community grows, you're going to see that kind of tension between the uh, pragmatists um, and those who want to take a little bit more affirmative, aggressive approach to defining the community's politics. That's beginning to play out a little bit this year, but I think that that debate is going to move into fuller bloom over the course of the next two election cycles as that community expands up and down the Hudson Valley. And tangentially to that, or although possibly not, is the casino issue. And I have heard quite a few rumblings of buyer's remorse amongst those in the Orthodox community that were the supportive. I think most people ultimately in the Orthodox community, if you look, did not support the casino referendum, but, uh, but, or they didn't vote for it at all. But I think, but there is, does seem to be some well, buyer's we're, remorse we're right now in amongst City those who did support it. I'm sorry, I missed that. I said we're going to have a meeting in Atlantic City on Christmas to discuss all of that and how Orthodox Jews feel about casinos. Um, I, I think that um, you know there there was support, there there was opposition, there's ideological opposition. I think in, in Orange County in particular, it's going to have a huge impact on Curious Joel. It's going to have a huge impact on that corridor. Um, a lot of thought probably wasn't given to that beforehand. The governor was for casinos, so a lot of people um, supported them. And whether that whether that issue itself. Uh, turns a significant number of people um, in this primary. Um, I don't know. We'll see how the casino issue plays in the Cuomo Astorino race. It's going to be interesting to see whether uh, Astorino goes on the attack on the casino front. And uh, last question for you. We're talking with the former Assemblyman Ryan Carbon of Rockland County, uh, previewing the primaries uh, here. And uh, most interesting to me is the number of sitting state senators under indictment or awaiting trial that are running in their races. Uh, two former majority leaders of the uh, New York State Senate who are both under indictment, John Sampson and Malcolm Smith, both running for re-election. And uh, they are uh, – John Sampson, in fact, is being supported by his county chair in Brooklyn as well as former borough president and Brooklyn cheerleader Marty Markowitz. Um, so how is that for interesting? Um, it's, it's interesting, um, unless you, you know, take a step back and, and think about the presumption of innocence. Um, and this really is the most democratic thing. You have one prosecutor or a team of prosecutors who says, okay, this person did something wrong, we're going to indict them. To indict somebody, as we all know, it does not, is not a huge heavy lift. You can indict a ham sandwich. But in a democracy, the voters get to pick. And the only thing that disqualifies you from office is a conviction for a felony. Um, and until that happens, I think that candidates and voters are well within their rights to seek office and vote for whomever it is they want. You know, Michael, um, Alan Hevesy, um, who was uh, accused of, of, of many things, um, but when that whole issue came up about the 
rides for his uh, wife. He had his state car chauffeur his, his wife around to some medical appointments. Widespread publicity, front pages, editorials all across the state, all across the state. And the voters knew about it. The polling showed that the voters knew about it. And they reelected Hevesy anyway. Millions of people. A month later, David Soros, the, the Democratic district attorney in Albany, forces Hevesy out of office, gets him to plead to a felony on the driving thing, and he leaves office. I have a problem with that. Millions and millions of voters do not get their preference for an elected official, even one who might not meet editorial board standards, overridden by, a pro- by an unelected prosecutor. So when these senators go and stand before the public despite their indictments, I think it affirms that the voters in this country are supposed to have the last say, and I respect our prosecutors out there, but at the end of the day, they work for the people. They represent the people of the state of New York, the people of the United States of America. But when the people speak with their own voice in an election, I think that's more important than what a prosecutor has to say. Okay, Ryan Carbon, former assemblyman, political pundit, and writer. Follow him on Carbon Copy and on Twitter. Thanks for joining us once again here on Spin Class. Always a pleasure, Michael. And uh, just to wrap up with our knucklehead of the week, I noticed that uh, we had a little brouhaha over the summer with uh, Bill de Blasio's Italy trip and other trips that he's taken, which he, un- as uncustomarily, is not reimbursing the taxpayers of the city of New York for his personal and campaign travel. And uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, by contrast, another Democrat, the mayor of the city of Chicago, has uh, just uh, paid his treasury $14,000 for personal and campaign travel. Bill de Blasio feels that it is not necessary for him to reimburse the taxpayers, even when he is going on personal and campaign business. Uh, I got to be honest. I think if you're going on campaign business, the campaign should be paying, not the taxpayers promoting your campaign. Uh, Mayor de Blasio, that earns you a knucklehead of the week. And thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, a little bit short of a show. Uh, we are back, and every week we will be talking about politics up until Election Day and beyond here on the Knuckle Siegel Network, knucklesegel.com, jmintheam.org. Mm-hmm.